I use that word tidy, and I think that tidy is the word that I have continuously used in terms of political life and political relationships and the way that I conduct myself on the dais and my votes and all of that. I think that tidy, keep it tidy, is, is something that I always say to myself and I say to my colleagues, because as politics are, you know, things can sometimes get messy. This is Sandra Munoz, and we're back with another episode of Law and Order Me Some Tacos. I'm recording this on the first day of August, and I know this is a cliche, but time goes by so fast, right? Like, it just stops for no one, no matter what, no matter how much you want it to slow down. But I wanted to come on and tell you about today's very special guest. I was really happy that she came on, because I think she's had such a really amazing experience and amazing career and amazing life. Today's guest is Alma Puente, who is an immigration attorney. And I wanted to say a couple of things about Alma before we really dive in with her. First of all, immigration attorneys are, I mean, they're in the thick of it, and they are really on the front lines trying to help and protect immigrants in this country, which is no easy battle at all. I mean, I can tell you that personally, because I have my own experience in the immigration world that maybe one day I'll talk about. I'm always in awe of them because their clients are, you know, some of the most vulnerable and some of the most in need of assistance people that we have in the country. And then the other thing I I wanted to tell you about Alma, which was also super impressive to me, is that she is totally down for the community where she grew up. Alma grew up in El Monte, which is actually pretty close to where I'm at right now in Montebello. It is a city in the San Gabriel Valley, and we're definitely going to talk about El Monte because Alma is also a city council person for the city of El Monte, which I was super fascinated by because if you know anything about me, I'm totally a political nerd. And her information on how she got to the city council and her experience is just super informative. And it's super important because often we don't think about the possibility of running for office and being in these positions, which are critical and they're super important and they impact the lives of all of us. So if you're at all interested in El Monte, if you're all interested in running for city council, or if you really want to hear about this amazing woman who has done so much in her life, who really honestly, after we were done, made me feel like, I I need to do more. I need to do more with my life. This is going to be a really great episode, and I really do hope you enjoy it. And I am super grateful that Alma was willing to come on and talk about her life and talk about her experiences. So here we go. And thank you again so much for tuning in and for listening. I do really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Sandra Munoz, and I'm here with a very special guest. I'm here with Alma Puente. Hi, Alma. Welcome. Hi, Sandra. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm actually having a fangirl moment right now because I'm a big fan of this podcast. So being on is a dream come true. Well, that's very nice of you to say. I mean, I'm glad that you're able to do this. So Alma, let's start with the question I always start with. Where are you from? 
I am from El Monte. I was born in Los Angeles because we don't have hospitals in El Monte, but I was brought to my first home in El Monte. I am the only child of Oscar and Delia Gutierrez, mm-hmm. and I have lived there or called it my home my entire life. I yeah. actually have the distinction of raising my three boys in the same house that I grew up in. Really? You live in the house where you grew up? Yeah, my parents bought that home. That was our second home in El Monte in 1979. And we used to rent the house in the back. And as my family grew, as I got married, we took over the house in the front. My parents live in the back. Ah, well, that's very lovely. It really is. I feel like it's very unique to to my story. Yeah, I still remember the address where I grew up initially. It's 4021 Fisher Street in East L.A. Because, you know, it's where I spent a good 12, 13 years of my life. So it's very nice that you're still there and your parents are living behind you. They are living behind me. As I said, I'm the only child. So now that they're elderly, it's just fallen to me as my responsibility to care for them. So having them super close is just so convenient. What was that like, Alma, growing up as an only child? Well, you know what? I relied a lot on my cousins because I have lots and lots and lots of them. I'm the only, only child on both sides. Yeah. And so they sort of became, by proxy, my brothers and sisters. But of course, being an only child, Sandra, in a monolingual Spanish-speaking home, it was all Espanol all the time. Yeah. It was Spanish news and Spanish radio and Spanish everything. So I went to kindergarten and I was like, what is this? language that people are speaking to me because I wasn't really exposed to it. Right, right. Did you go to school in El Monte? I did. So kindergarten, where I learned some English, Mm -hmm. was a local kindergarten there, public kindergarten in in El Monte, Cherry Lee School. And then my parents, who are very devoutly Catholic, sent me to Nativity School, which is in El Monte as well. Mm. But it's private Catholic, and I went there first through eighth grade. And then after eighth grade, did you also stay in Catholic school? I did. I got shipped off to Sierra Madre to Alverno High School, which mm-hmm. is an all-girls Catholic high school, which actually just shut its doors permanently last month. Oh, really? Yeah. I think what happened is with the school is that there was an all-boys school, LaSalle, just down the street. Yeah. But they became co-ed several years ago. So I think that enrollment at the all-girls school just started to plummet. Dwindled. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's too bad. It is too bad. I got an amazing education there. I have nothing but good things to say about my schooling there. It was amazing, despite the fact that I was in a school with girls who are at very different socioeconomic levels than me. It was all ritzy girls from Pasadena and Sierra Madre and San Marino. And you were from El Monte. (laughs) From El Monte. (laughs) And what did your parents do? My dad worked at an industrial glue factory, Mm -hmm. so adhesive for carpets and things like that. I still remember going to the laundromat with my dad in his work clothes because my mom wouldn't let him wash at home because, you know, his stuff would be full of glue. So he would take me with him. (laughs) And my mom, for many years, worked at a convalescent home in the kitchen. Yeah, and sometimes she would bring me to the convalescent home and I would hate it because all the old people would pinch my cheeks. But then after a number of years, once I was kind of in high school, I think she started working at the local high school, which is a royal high school in El Monte, Mm. in the cafeteria as well. Oh, really? And that's where she retired from. So did your mom also cook at home? Yeah, she did. Yeah. She did. And she would cook sometimes like super white people food that she would learn how to cook at the convalescent or at the cafeteria. Like, oh, what the heck is chicken a la king? Oh, I like chicken a la king. (laughs) Come over. She'll cook it for you. (laughs) But I swear she's the only lady from Zacatecas who probably knows how to make 
That's really funny. I mean, your parents were born in Mexico? No. So, yes, my mom was born in Zacatecas, and my dad was born in Arizona, but raised in Mexicali. He had this weird, like, reverse migration story. I think he doesn't really talk about it, but I think my grandfather took all his kids to Mexico because World War II was kind of raging, and he was like, you know, my kids are not going to get drafted, so they carted off to Mexicali. To Mexicali, and so he grew up there. He grew up there, and I know the story goes that it was really hard for my grandmother, my dad's mom, because she was also from Arizona, mm. and she was raised in Arizona, so she was used, accustomed to the U.S. way of life. Right. So it was very hard for her when they transitioned. Her and her husband and the kids um, moved to Mexicali, but she found a way. Yeah, yeah. And so then at some point, your father came to the United States. Yes. Came back. He came back, and he moved in with my aunt in El Monte, and that's where he met my mom, and... The rest is history, El Monte history. El Monte history, that's right. <laughs> and, and I mean, I know where El Monte is because it's very close to where I grew up, right? It's close to East LA, close to Montebello. But it's off the 10 freeway? It is off the 10 freeway. It's sort of El Monte to the north and then south El Monte, which a lot of people know is a completely different city mm-hmm. to the south of the 10 freeway. South of the 10th is South El Monte. Mm-hmm. And then north of the 10th is El Monte. Yeah, for the most part. The f- lines get a little funny sometimes, but that's kind of the dividing line. Yeah. And, I mean, it's interesting. I'm sure you're very familiar with that because you're also an El Monte city council person, correct? That is correct. It was one of those, Sandra, one of those never did I ever dream of getting into politics ever. I know. I was going to ask you about that, Christine. It's, I mean, you know, we're going to jump ahead a little bit, but it's such an interesting move. How did that happen? Pandemic. So I was in the mayor's ear, um, the mayor at that time. I was always in his ear about, Mayor, you know, we have so many notarios in, in El Monte. We need to protect our people. They're so vulnerable. And let's run these people out of the city. And how can I help you? And I was like, name, name, you know. So one of those times that I was in his ear, he's like, OK, come and meet with me. And I think that he had a plan. He said, come and meet with me and we'll chat about it. And so I met with him and he's like, oh, you know what? The city manager has me doing a tour to visit the residents because everybody's locked up and we're going to go out on the trolley. Do you want to come with me? Like, okay. Like an actual trolley? Yeah, El Monte has a trolley. Okay. 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 And the mayor goes around in it? So, I mean, whoever. If you want to come, I might be able to get you around oh, in the trolley. Oh, shoot. That's an awesome connection. You could record the podcast from the trolley in El Monte. <laughs> Recording live from El Monte. So you, Anyways, you go on the trolley. So I go on the trolley, and we're kind of greeting residents and, you know, this and that. And he's like, oh, you know, have you ever thought about, because elections were coming up. And he's like, have you ever thought about running for city council? We have a couple seats that, you know, are coming open. And I may have used an expletive or two. And I was like, are you insane? Are you out of your mind? I had not even thought about Sandra, it. Sandra, I was on a crusade against notarios. I was not looking to get into politics. but <laughs> But then... Once I started to, to really start to see the impact of the pandemic on my city, the number of cases, the effects on the economy and the small businesses yeah. in my city, of which mine was one. Right. And I thought to myself, how selfish of me not to consider lending a hand, rolling up my sleeves and getting involved as much as I possibly can in my city's recovery. And that's what turned a absolutely not are you insane to a yes. Oh, wow. And interestingly, Sandra, when it was the 2020 election where Trump and Biden went Mm -hmm. head to head and Kamala was on the ticket. So it was um, a lot of people were paying attention to the election, right? And so I attribute it to that. I attribute it to the fact that I was a female Latina immigration lawyer was my designation on the ballot. And when they put the candidates on a ballot, I don't know if you know, but the county sort of draws straws to see who goes first, who goes second. Who I goes did not third. know that. 
So I drew first. Oh, wow. So I was a very top yeah. candidate on the council member. And how many positions were open, or is it, was it just for the one position? No, so there were two open seats on the council, and there were four of us running. Okay. So only two of us were going to win. And all four were running for both. In other words, they weren't, they weren't separate elections, separate seats, separate elections for Correct. separate it seats. Correct. At that point, the city elected council members at large. Mm. So it was two seats. Two people were going to win them regardless of where they lived. Yeah. And so I won, and it turns out that I became the most getting candidate, I think, in the history of the city. But again, I'm attributing it to the fact that lots of people were paying attention and I was first on the ballot. And I think that my ballot designation as an immigration attorney, I think was helpful as well. Yeah, I'm sure it was, but still that's a great accomplishment. Well, I mean, it's a little straw I put in my hat. Let me ask you, so were there any incumbents? So one of the incumbents won another seat along with me yeah. and one of the incumbents lost a seat. And, and that was in 2000? 2020. Oh, yes, that makes sense. You took it to the way back. <laughs> to way back. 2020, and then you took office in 2021? Yes. Well, I think I was sworn in in December 2020, mm. and so then I hit the ground running. And it's, I believe it's a four-year term, correct? Yeah. Yes, so I'm up for re-election in November of next year. Let me ask you, I'm going to ask you two questions, Alma, because first of all, I wanted to go back a little bit to this issue of notarios, because I, I am familiar with the issue of notarios. I've heard, I mean, I have immigration attorneys who are colleagues of mine and friends of mine, and I've heard, what is the issue with notarios? The issue with notarios, it's cultural as well as legal. So notarios for many of our people who come from Mexico, Central America, South America, in those areas, a notario is a lawyer plus. Right. Like you're licensed to practice law, plus you're some sort of fancier lawyer. I can't really tell you the mechanics of that. But here in the U.S., we tell a notary is somebody who basically authenticates your signature, right? Verifies that you're the person who's affixing their signature to a document or authenticating a document. But what happens is many people capitalize on the fact that our people think that notarios are lawyers plus, and they go to them for legal advice, right. which they're not supposed to be giving. And they're engaging in the unlicensed practice of law. Right. And what happens is that they will get people into incredibly complicated legal situations that sometimes we can't fix. No matter how crafty or talented a lawyer you are, you just can't undo, undo the damage yeah. that's already been done. And this is generally in the immigration area. Yeah, that's yeah. where we predominantly see that type of fraud. I mean, yeah. I'll call it that. And so, you know, it was. it's always been um, very close to my heart to protect our communities from that type of predator. And I know it's been a, a huge campaign across the state for a lot of people who have worked really diligently to make sure that notarios are not fraudulently representing people. Correct. The only thing that they're allowed to do really is to fill out forms. Yeah. And so then my other question, Alma, is because this, this idea of running for office, it so intrigues me, not because I'm interested in ever running for office, but because I love elections and I love politics. What was the mechanics of that? Did you just throw, like, fill out an application and then just start campaigning? No. So you have to collect a certain number of signatures. I think it was 25 of residents in order to be able to as we say, throw your, throw your name in the hat. So once you've collected those signatures and the addresses, and you have to make sure that the address is done in their handwriting, not in your own, because that will get at your signatures thrown out. So you have to be very careful about how you, if you go about collecting those signatures and putting them on your paper. So then you register with the county. 
and you have to pay them a fee. I think it was about $1,500 because what they do is you have what you're paying for is for them to run your kind of your little bio on the books that you get before the elections where you know you get sort of the description of, and the political affiliations, although council members are nonpartisan, but I'm just, you know, that's that's the book that you get. And so you're paying basically for the publication of that. I see. And yeah, then you just start campaigning, you start collecting endorsements, you have to raise money, yeah. which was really hard for me until I think that I I had to refocus or, or sort of change the lens by which I was looking at, at fundraising. I had to stop thinking while I'm asking for money for me. And I had to think about it. I had to broach it in I'm collecting money for my community because I'm doing this for my community, right. not for myself. Right. And so thankfully, you know, my friends really stepped in and, and, you know, they hit up their friends and we were able to raise, you know, enough money to get lawn signs and, you know, people to do phone banking for me. And everybody just really stepped up to the task. And sometimes I feel like, you know, that you have friends, but then when they step into spaces like that for you, oh, yeah. it's like, wow, it just really blows you away. How will these people are to support you in your endeavors and so I mean for me it was it was just really touching to see how my friends and colleagues were so excited about this and just really believed in me as a candidate well I mean I'm not surprised at all about that but yeah I can see how 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 that would mean a lot because it's asking a lot right it's asking people to donate money or to donate their time yeah absolutely yeah um, and then did you have to hire like a campaign manager or well, I don't know. I don't know that you have to. I did. Yeah, I did. I hired a, a campaign uh, manager who would kind of um, deal with my social media and my website yeah. and he would talk to me about, okay, here, you, we need to design your lawn signs and what colors make sense and what logos make sense and yeah. what catchphrases make sense and all of that stuff. And then you have to have an accountant treasurer to make sure that you stay within the confines of what's legal because you can get yourself into trouble with, you know, if you're not crossing the T's and dotting the I's properly. Because these are a lot of election finance laws, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The FPPC will come for you if the things are not kept tidy. And I use that word tidy. And I think that tidy is the word that I have continuously used in terms of political life and political relationships and the way that I conduct myself on the dais and my votes and all of that. I think that tidy, keep it yeah. tidy, is, yeah. is something that I always say to myself and I say to my colleagues, because as politics are, you know, things can sometimes get messy. And so what has the experience been like after you got elected? It's been rewarding. It's been mm -hmm. gut-wrenching. It's been hard. It's been incredibly exhausting at times. Yeah. Because this is a part-time job that you take on aside from all of your other obligations. And, you know, sometimes, well, a council meeting will always start at 6 p.m. If we're lucky, we're done at 10, 1030. But we have had meetings, for instance, the last one where we passed the budget for the next fiscal year. We were there until 1245. And these are on Tuesdays. And then, you know, you wake up on Wednesday and you just start the day over again. And, you know, I don't get to put my kids to bed. And, you know, you miss out on a lot of things. I came into this for purposes of helping my city or hoping to help my city to recover from the effects of COVID. And I, I do feel like we've been able to do that. We've put out some amazing programs. I was able to help the city to bring in a guaranteed income program for single mothers where it's a stipend of $500 where they can use it for whatever it is that they need for a period of 12 months. And we're one of the first cities in the nation to bring this on. So I'm super, super proud of that. Me, along with my colleagues, had to decide where the $42 million that we got from the ARPA Act were going to be spent. 
So it's a big responsibility. How do you learn how to do all of that, Alma? Like, is it, do you get training? Those are like, I mean, Almonte is not a small, it's not a tiny city. It's not a huge city, but it's... We have 120,000 residents, so it, it's a fairly large-sized city. And we have a lot of vulnerable populations in our city as well, a lot of need in our city. And no, you don't go to council member school. You <laughs> should be council member school. I How do you know. learn all of that? There are so many complicated issues that you deal with as a council member, Sandra, and you just really, you really rely on staff reports a lot. I mean, our agendas, we get them typically on a Thursday for a Tuesday meeting the following week, and they could be anywhere from 700 to 1,300 pages. Um, And so you have to make sure that you pour over that agenda, and if you have questions, you pose them to the city manager, you ask staff, because, you know, it could be a matter with police issues, or it could be a zoning issue, or it could be a number of different things. Anything that has to do with the city... um, has to come through the council. And one thing that was also really hard that we've dealt with during my term is we divided the city into districts because a city of our size really should not be running the council members should not be running at large. And one of the things that we started to see is that a lot of the council members were coming from the north side of the city. And so it became very important for me, and I think for a lot of my council colleagues, to make sure that we were getting representation from all parts of the city mm-hmm. because the needs are different, because there are different socioeconomic pockets, there are different ethnic pockets, there are different interests in certain areas. People have a tendency to congregate in certain parts of the city. We also could have gotten sued for being such a large city and not having districts. And so it was a challenge to get the buy-in from some of the council members who disagreed, and we had a little bit of pushback from the community, but we got it done. And so now we have six districts in the city. I'm still at large. Me and the other council member who ran during the 2020 election are still at large, but everybody else is divided into districts. Oh, wow. And so when you run again, will you be running in a district? I'll be running in district one. And is the mayor separately elected or is that position, does that position rotate amongst the city council people? No, so she's an elected mayor and they serve a two-year term. So it feels like they're constantly having to campaign. It's really tough. And so council seats are four years. The mayor's seat is two. The only thing that does uh, rotate is a mayor pro tem, which is is a fancy Mm. term for the vice mayor. Right. I just passed the torch to the new mayor pro tem in January, I think. And let me ask you, Alma, this is all very fascinating to me because, like I said, I'm a political nerd. Do you have aspirations beyond the El Monte City Council? Not at this time, Sandra. I feel like my purpose was to support my city, and that's really what sort of coaxed me into accepting the challenge of delving into politics. But you know what? I've come to a point in my life where I'll never say never. And so I could say no right now, and I could be asking you for a contribution next year. I can feel your connection to El Monte, and it just seems to me that you're very devoted to El Monte, and, and you feel like love for it. I do, Sandra. I feel like it's the city that, you know, saw my parents' romance blossom. It's a city that saw me being born. It's a city where I got, you know, part of my education. When I came to set up my solo practice, there was no other city that I would ever have looked at besides setting up in that city. And I'll tell you an interesting story. The first building that I ever set up my my solo practice in, 
is right off the 10 freeway. You might have seen it. It's a building that has reflective glass instead of walls. And so if you look for your car as you're passing on the freeway, you could see your car. And so as a kid, my aunt used to live in Rosemead. And so we would take the 10 freeway and it was always a fun game for me to play because I was a dorky only child, you know, I had to make up my own games. You were in the back seat. Yeah, so I would always play the game of find the car. And so it resonated with me so much that my very first solo practice office was set up in that building because it meant so much to me because I had such memories. And I moved in January of 2020, but I moved into another childhood memory of mine because we used to go to the bank. I used to go to the bank with my mom at that building. And I would always wonder, what are those offices up there? Who works up there? Mm. And so now I work there. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It is. I have just I'm such fond childhood memories in those two buildings, and it, it just feels so full circle for me to have set up an office. So I can really relate to your feelings for El Monte because I feel the same way about East LA. I've always said that if unincorporated East LA ever became a city, I would contemplate running for the East LA City Council. Oh, okay. But, you know, that's probably never going to happen, so I think I'm in the clear. (laughs) Never say never, Sandra. Never say never. Okay, so let's go back, because on top of all of your responsibilities as an El Monte City Council member, you're obviously also a practicing attorney. What got you, or what led you to law school, or did you always want to be an attorney? I did. I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was six years old. Really? And maybe you will remember the People's Court before Judge Judy was Judge Wapner. Heck yeah, the People's Court. He was mean. Oh, he was really mean. He was mean, but he was fascinating. (laughs) And so I was like, I want to be a lawyer. But Sandra, I mean, understand that it wasn't like, oh, I have these lofty aspirations. I think that I said that I wanted to be a lawyer when I was six years old. Like kids now say they want to be a unicorn. Yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't like people like me don't do that. I've never met a lawyer, much less a female lawyer, much less lawyer of color. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was just one of these things that, you know, you say as a kid, right? Yeah. But it was it was a narrative that I had, Mm -hmm. as people always do to little kids. What do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Judge Wapner. I think he scared me. Just I guess really, I think that my dream matured from I want to be a lawyer like a kid wants to be a unicorn, too. When I was in college, Pete Wilson came up with Prop 187. Yes. Right? Yeah. And fascinating that my mom was becoming a a naturalized citizen during that time. And I think she felt a sense of urgency because she was scared. Yeah. Those years were very scary. It was like the political version of the Night Stalker. It really was. I mean, I was born in the United States, but it still felt really frightening. Yeah, Uh, it did. Yeah. And so I think watching my mother's plight and that fear, I thought, really just made my dreams and my goals and Mm -hmm. focusing on becoming an immigration lawyer, it just made me hone in. Yeah. And I was like, this is it. Thank you, Pete Wilson. And so... I was pre-law in undergrad, which was at Chapman University. Chapman University in? Orange. In Orange. In Orange. So I was an English major with a pre-law emphasis. Mm. And then I got through college. I was 21 when I was about to graduate. And I just didn't feel ready for law school. Mm. I didn't feel ready. And so I said... It it is young to be... I mean, some people go to law school, right, from undergrad. And you end up being a lawyer, like, at 24, which is... Yeah, weird. Really young, right? To be taking on so much. Absolutely. I think I felt that, and it was also really expensive. Mm -hmm. And I think that really was overwhelming for me. And so... I knew that I wanted to practice immigration law. I mean, I think it sounds a lot incongruous because what I did is I went to go work at the border for the federal government. Oh, did you? I did. And 
How, how did that happen? So, you're so confused. I think I was too. It happened because when I was in college in the summers, I would work for the USDA at the airport, the Department of Agriculture. Oh, really? Yeah, so random. I would open people's like luggage and be like, oh, señora, no puede traer queso. You know what I mean? Wait, you can't bring cheese? <laughs> no, you can't bring mangoes from the Philippines. You know, it's like the pollo cambero in the luggage and all that stuff. So that's what I did during the summers. And so I got exposed to what federal government work was. Mm. And so my cousin who got me into the Department of Agriculture was like, hey, why don't you think about, you know, you want to, you know, do immigration work. Why don't you go work at the board? And I was like, okay. I did get hired. I was 21 years old when I went Mm. to the federal law enforcement training facility in Georgia, Flutzy, where I learned to drive cop cars and shoot guns. I would carry a 40 caliber weapon. But I'll tell you, Sandra, I'm going to go back a little bit. When I I started to think about taking that job. The first one that I went to was my mother. Because I said, Mom, I know that you have been in the hands of immigration officers deporting you. And you've told me the stories of the brown sack lunches they would give you and the stale donuts that they would give you to eat. And that makes me want to ask you, how do you feel about the fact that I'm going to go to the border and do this work? And she said, those people were always kind to me. Really? And I want you to go and treat those people with the dignity and the kindness that they treated me with. And so you did. That was my green light. Because I was like, if my mom has a reaction to this, if this triggers her, I'm not going to do it. I won't. Yeah. And so she was so kind and gracious with her response. Yeah. Never once asking why, how could you? And so I did. I went and did it. And I remember calling my mom from the academy. I had my 22nd birthday in Georgia. And and I was like... You were so young. I was a baby. I was like, Mom, we had gun training today. And my hands are bleeding because I have blisters. And I don't like it. And I hate it. And I can't see out of the backseat of the car. And they want me to go in reverse. She was like, come home. Come home. But you're going to regret coming home. You're going to regret giving up. And so I stuck with it. I was at the Calexico Port of Entry for two years, from 1996 to 1998. And you, you were basically a, you were a, a cop. You were... I was a border cop. Yeah, you were a border cop. I was a border cop. Um, what was that like? I'm not, it was rough. Yeah. It was rough. First of all, it, Calexico at that point was remote. I mean, there was nothing there. There are malls there now in the Imperial Valley, but it was just, it felt very isolating. The work was hard because it went against everything that I believed, but I was learning, Sandra. I was learning this agency from the inside out, and I was like, damn it, I'm going to bring this back to my practice, and it's going to be amazing. But I would have to give myself pep talks like that Mm. um, because a day in the day out was hard yeah. and it was hot. The Imperial Valley temperatures get up to 110 Ugh. and that polyester uniform and that gun belt and that 40 caliber, I'm gonna tell you, it makes it yeah several degrees hotter. Yeah, I'm sure. And the air conditioning in the little huts never works. Yeah. And so as soon as I could, which it took me two years, I made my way back to downtown Los Angeles because there was no way that I could get through law school working in Calexico because there was nothing close by. So the goal was always to get back to LA. And so I was able to transfer within the federal government with the Department of Homeland Security, but then I was doing adjudications where I was doing interviews for green cards and for citizenship. Mm. And so that was 1998. So that's when I started looking at evening programs because I knew that I had to work full time. Yeah. It was like, it was Loyola and Southwestern. Exactly. And so they were the ones that had evening programs. Right. And so I was accepted to both. Of course, I made the better choice. Of course you did. Of course I did. And yeah, I would work from 7 to 5.30. I would make my way to school, start at 6.00. And classes would go until 9.50. You are a workhorse. There was no other way. Yeah. There was no other way. There was nothing that was going to stop me from reaching my goal. And, you know. When did you go to Loyola? 
I was at Loyola from 99 to 04. Oh, I just missed you. Yeah. I, I, gra- I graduated in 97. Oh, yeah. You yeah. were finishing up as, as I was sort of starting to come in. Yeah. I did the five-year program, Sandra. Normally, mm-hmm. normal is three. Evening students are four. Yeah. But I took the path of most resistance because I got married and had a baby in the middle of all that. Oh my goodness, Alma, really? I did. Um, When I started school, Sandra, at Loyola, I was like, I'm working full time and I'm going to law school. I'm not going to date. Well, the universe had different plans for me because I was, we got married between semesters, second year. I had my last final on a Tuesday. We got married on a Saturday. And uh, yeah, then I came back from my honeymoon and started the next semester. And then my husband and I were such great planners. We said, you know what? We're going to be married. It's going to be fantastic. And we're not going to have kids until a year after the bar exam. So we had it planned out. Our son was due on the second year anniversary of our wedding, which I was still in school. I was like, well, there goes that. And so when I took the bar exam, I had an 18-month-old. Oh, wow. Yeah, and kudos to that kid because kudos to my husband because I feel like he was a single father basically. Yeah, I mean the thing is, if you haven't taken the bar, I don't know that. And I mean back then it was still the three day bar, right? Still the real bar. If you haven't taken the bar, congratulations. But also, it's super intense. Like you graduate from law school like in May, and then the the bar is in the end of July, and you basically spend two and a half months just all you do is study to try to learn what the subject matters, the subject matters are you going to be tested on. That's right. And my sweet husband, I just told this story the other day where he would bring our son to the parking lot of the library and bring me dinner. And we would have mm-hmm. dinner on top of the, yeah. on top of the car and then he would take the baby home and yeah. I would stay in the library. Kudos to your, to your husband indeed that, you know, not, not every, I'm sure not every spouse is <laughs> that supportive. Oh, the man has been through it. Yeah. Still, right? Still, we will be married 23 years in oh, December. That's very nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So you you really like you did a lot by the time you graduated from law school and you knew going to law school that you wanted to be an immigration attorney without a doubt yeah and so what did you do after you graduated so after I graduated it was really interesting because one of the last interviews that I did as an officer was the citizenship for like Martin Sheen's nanny or something and so the lawyer, you know, the lawyer and I got to talking and he's like, oh, you know, by the way, it came to, to the topic that I was in law school and I, you know, taking the bar and all that stuff. And he's like, well, when you pass the bar, give me a call. Mm-hmm. So his firm was in Sherman Oaks. And so I was like, okay. So I called this guy and he's like, sure, we need an associate. Come work for us. So imagine the commute from El Monte to Sherman Oaks. No, that's too far. That lasted all about eight months. That's way too far. And also the firm was a great firm, but they would do visas for like people of extraordinary ability. They were working with the studios and things like that. And that just wasn't where my heart was. That's not why I had put myself through law school. And so that lasted about eight months. And then an opening came up at the law office of Enrique Arevalo in South Pasadena, which, as you may or may not know, is is known as like the boot camp for immigration lawyers. Oh, I know. Yes, yes, I know. A lot of my friends have worked there. Yeah. Yeah. So I started there in January of 2006. Mm. And I'm telling you, when you work at Indica's office, you have a hand in every type of case. Nothing will surprise you once you've been through that office, which is amazing. And so I was there, and then I got pregnant with twins. And when those babies were born in January of 2010, it just became very clear to me, Sandra, that I wasn't going to be able to serve my family well because Indica's office is a very Mm high-paced environment. And so I said, well, to my poor husband, 
there's no better time for me to go solo, dear. It's like, okay. And so my firm is as old as my twin boys, 13 years old. You started your office when you had your twin boys. Yeah, yeah. There's a picture of me at my very first desk in my very first office, which was a closet. And both babies are crying. They're in my arms. And I have this very concerned look on my face. But here we are now. You're fearless. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I'm scared. Yeah, yeah. So you started your own office in January of 2010. And in El Monte. And that's where you've always been. That's where I've stayed. Yeah, that's just super cool. Do you focus on any particular area of immigration law? Yeah, so I do family-based immigration, and then Mm. I do removal defense um, and asylum. So I don't do citizens of extraordinary ability. (laughs) There are other lawyers who do that. I'm not that. But it was really cool to have been able to experience that and know what I didn't want to do, right? And so I know where my heart is. I know where my niche is, and I love it. Do you love it? Yeah. Family-based immigration, meaning like if you get married or you want to adjust for your mother or father, that kind of... Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what it is. So I would say two-thirds of my practice is that. And then there's removal defense people who are in deportation proceedings. And many of the people who are in deportation proceedings are people coming here seeking asylum. Immigration work is just so important and also just can be really devastating as well. A hundred percent. The secondary trauma is very real. Yeah. Very real. And I say it to all of my colleagues that it's so important to exercise self-care because you really can go to very dark places um, with the things that you hear. Uh, Yeah. And how do you do that? How do we care about ourselves? (laughs) How do you accomplish that? I think it's different for everybody, Sandra. I think for me, if I can come home and watch the Dodgers Mm. hopefully win (laughs) with my boys. You big Dodger fan? the very biggest and I have some members of my staff who may hear this podcast who are Angels fans and they're so lucky that they're so good at their job they're so good but they're Angels fans and they're not quiet ones either oh really oh no oh the the audacity they have audacity even though their Angels stink Anyways, so it's sometimes as simple as coming home and watching the Dodger game. And sometimes it means going to Burke Williams and getting a Mm. massage and always making sure that I have a getaway planned, no matter how far in the future. But I can always look to that and say, okay, we can get there. Right. Whether it's just my husband and I, whether it's a girl's trip away, whether it's a family trip to Hawaii, like what we just came back for, but something to cast your eyes on when the going gets rough. Right, right. I don't practice immigration law, but I do employment law. And some of the cases, you know, they're very heavy. And just generally, you're talking about my clients have lost their jobs. And in some cases, that has had both a financial and emotional impact. There's Uh, trauma there. Yeah, there's definitely trauma. So it can get really heavy. I do try to, like, leave that aside when I come home. Yeah. Because it, it can be heavy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But my mom does a very good job of sort of centering me. You know, the other day I had a rough day at work and I got home and she had just recently had cataract surgery. And so she's like, I need you to sit down and I need you to write these thank you notes. And in my head, I'm like, mom, these are Spanish speaking people. Can you just do it? And also I had a really rough day at work, but this was an inner dialogue. So I didn't say that to my mother because we, you know, as daughters of Mexican mothers, we don't get to draw boundaries, but I just did it. And so I feel like sometimes that's almost therapeutic, where it's just like, let me do something that feels super mundane, and it gets your mind off of the troubles of the day. Well, you're a better person because when my mom instructs me to do that, I don't ever consider it soothing or self-care. Trust me, my mom is very demanding. You feel me. I feel you. Hashtag socorro. Um, So let's talk about something also very important, Alma, because I think we probably don't agree on this. Uh Uh-oh. You think el bato sauce is too spicy? (laughs) 
Did somebody out me? You did. Oh, man. I'm going to tell you something. I think that my mom has many disappointments in her life. And one of them is the fact that I can tolerate no spice. Oh, my God. Zero. She mocks me and says that I think that ketchup is spicy. And wait, the woman has tenacity because she's never stopped trying. I'm 48 years old, about to be 49 in October, and she'll still be like, Prueba esto, hija, no pica. And then I'm a sucker, and I'll try it. And I'm like, Mom, this is like burning my intestines. She's like, ay, no pica. But I just, I don't have a tolerance for it. I think I low-key have an allergy because it burns my taste buds in the in a way, Sandra, that I can't taste anything else. So not even like tapatio or... Okay, so... Tajin? Tajin-ish. It's, okay. it's like, There's no judgment here. I think you're judging me. I see your face. Okay, so Cholula, I can tolerate a little bit. Okay. I don't know what it is. I think it might be less acidic than Tapatio and like Tabasco. Yeah. So I can tolerate and actually enhances the flavors for me sometimes. But Tajin, it has to be like you barely pass the bottle. Like It's almost like, like the essence of Tajin and it's like, oh, wow, that's spicy. So yeah, my mom hates it. And my husband, well, thankfully for me and Sadly for my mom, because he's the same way. He can't tolerate it. He either. can't tolerate either. No. Well, so see, it make, it's a match made in heaven. Well, my totally. And to answer your question, yes, I do think that salsa de pato is too spicy. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like Hunt's tomato sauce level. If you're going to make me some enchiladas, make them with tomato oh, sauce. Oh, I can, Alma. I'm not going to lie. I'm totally judging you. <laughs> I know. I've heard your podcast and I've heard you rap with people who are like picante lovers. And I'm like, oh, man, if she invites me, I don't know where I'm going to say. Maybe I'll lie. But I decided against it. Well, you out it yourself. <laughs> I so I don't know. But let me ask you this, too, because so you don't do sriracha? No. Well, see, then consider yourself fortunate because there is no sriracha anywhere. I've seen your plight. I've seen your plight. I know you're down to the little packets now. And I'm like, I she am. It's so sad. I'm really worried and stressed about the fact that there's a shortage. What we were going to say about Irwindale is really close to El Monte. Yeah, it's right next door. And the lines of the cities are super weird where it's just like El Monte, Irwindale, El Monte again, and then Baldwin Park. I'm like, I don't understand. And Irwindale, for those of you who don't know, is where the sriracha plant or manufacturing that's where the guess, sriracha guess where it happened well it's not happening right now no magic is happening <laughs> so yeah so see there is a positive to you not liking spicy food you're not affected by the sriracha of shortage in any way no well there you go but i worry about you you should because it really stresses me out i have to like be really careful about my sriracha use well then you could be a good mexican and take your sriracha bottle put water in it shake it around a little bit like we do with the shampoo oh, you really don't know how spicy stuff works huh <laughs> it's just like shampoo right totally a little bit goes a long way <laughs> all right uh, let's be serious though that does not mean that you don't like tacos right i mean you like tacos I do like tacos. Yes, absolutely. Sin salsa. Thank you. I go to King Taco and I don't get the green or the red. I'd be like, no, thank you. And the people always look at me with such a judgmental eye. You don't even do the green one at King Taco? It's so spicy. That is a lie. (laughs) Okay, Alma. I'm going to leave my judgment to the side. What are your favorite three tacos? Okay, so I love Tacos La Unica. Tacos La Unica is a truck that is on Olympic down the street from that scary Sears building um, that is a stuff of childhood trauma for me because it scares me. 
Because the windows are open. Yes, it scares <laughs> what do you mean? me. It's scary. I'm sure there's really? ghosts that live in there. Well, by this time, probably yes. Yeah, something scary lives in there. Um, you didn't go there. Wait, did you used to go there when you were young? No, no, because we had one in El Monte. Oh no, that that was my Sears. Oh, so it wasn't scary back in the no, day. No, no, there was a place in the back where they had the catalogs opened up, and you could order from the catalogs back there. See, I don't have childhood memories there, so all I know is like the punched out windows, shot out windows, and I just think it's scary. My mom also worked for Sears for oh, like man. 20, 30 years. Okay, so there's Socorro memories yes. there. Okay, sorry. It's okay. Well, okay, okay. All right. But the, Tacos La Unica. It's a truck, and I learned about it from Chrissy Teigen because they cater their parties. Birria Tacos. Yes. Yes. All right, so Tacos La Unica. I know which place. You, I've never been there, but I know which, which truck you're talking about. Okay, so. I also saw the Chrissy Teigen post. Yes, so, so that. And then also Sonoritas. We used to drive all the way to Westwood for them. They were really? on Sautel. They're really good. They're really, like, they're kind of bougie because they use, like, filet mignon, and they make their tacos out of that. Ooh. They have this Maritierra burrito. It's phenomenal. But thankfully now there's one in downtown. So what is this Maritierra burrito? So it's, like, filet mignon and shrimp and then tons of guacamole, and their tortillas are fresh. Oh, um, that sounds good. And it, it is amazing. It's really good. Oh, that sounds good. I don't know if I'd go to Westwood for it, but you're saying there's one down. Now there's one downtown near the Crypto Center. It's hard for me to stop calling it the Staples Center, but it's Crypto Center. It's always going to be the Staples Center to me. Yes, I'm with you. Yeah. It's actually across the street from El Cholo in downtown. El Cholo. All right. And then your third. My third one is not a taco at all. It's actually Burrito, Burrito La Palma yes, in El Monte. Yes, which you brought to me today. I said to you, Sandra, how can I come from El Monte and not bring you Burrito La Palma? I mean, you really couldn't. Right. Uh, yeah, it might have cost you a re-election. Without a doubt. I would have campaigned against They would have canceled my El Montean card. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's birria as well. It's beef birria. Yeah. I mean, they make their own tortillas. And they they are from Jerez, Zacatecas, which is a, a town near where my mom is from. Oh, really? So I feel like connection, kind of, like, kind of family. And I know they call them burritos. And, I mean, they are burritos, but they are kind of like a taco because it doesn't have like rice and beans it's just the whatever you ask for yes that's true but i don't know about you the way that i define it distinguish a burrito from a taco is a tortilla for me a taco is corn and a burrito is flour but i don't know i feel like you're more of an authority on that so i am open to being wrong no i i think you're generally correct but there are a lot of taco places that use tortillas de harina yes particularly from mexicali uh, Particularly the Norteños, yes. Um, So I feel like it's a regional thing for sure. So I think that the definition or the the defining line um, between a taco and a burrito probably is regional. Well, and and I totally understand. So for you, it's it's corn versus flour. For me, I think when you put rice in it, it's a burrito. And then I don't like you because (laughs) I don't want rice in my burrito. Okay, so if we're at a carne asada and I'm like, I'm going to serve Sandra a plate of tacos. And I'm like, okay, here's the meat. And I'm just going to throw a little bit of rice and sopa de arroz in there. And then to me, you're going to be angry. In the taco? Yeah. In the taco? Oh, no. 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 Because I'm trying to make it easy for you that we don't have to use a fork. That's that's more offensive than you not liking. (laughs) You're (laughs) Yes. Okay, so no. you're a purist. You're I'm a like absolutely meat a purist. and salsa, and that's it. And onions and cebolla. So in Spanish and in English, onions. <laughs> yes, onions. I need some cilantro. English onions, and then I need some <laughs> Mexican onions. No, onions and cilantro. Yes. 
I don't eat onions. Oh, my God, Alma. <laughs> they uh, give me migraines, Sandra. I think it's an allergy thing. Alma. Um, so I, I really, if you I'm really, having... I can't, you don't like, uh, so you don't like onions? No, I can't eat them. I can eat them if they're cooked, like really cooked inside of, of a <laughs> plate, like a guisado, I'll eat them. But you won't find any raw onions anywhere near my food. In fact, I don't let my staff bring stuff, raw onions, into the office. Wait, you have staff that brings raw onions into your office? Sometimes we'll be like, oh, let's do tacos. And then I'll be like, you better leave those, eat those onions in the hallway. (laughs) I can't, I love onions. I don't know that I can, like when I cook, there's always onions. I can tolerate that as long as they're really like caramelized. But raw onions are just not the business. Okay, well, that's very interesting. (laughs) I feel like our friendship is over. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about this. (laughs) Okay, so yeah. No, I am a purist in many ways. I I know the people who know me know I'm also kind of a segregationist when it comes to food. I don't like to mix food culture. So, for example, like when I see like birria ramen, I'm like... Uh, no, that is not necessary. That's weird. That's very weird, right? Or like when you put tapatio on pizza, I'm just like, no. Okay. You're like pepper flakes only on my pizza. <laughs> exactly. Because that's Italian. <laughs> you know, it makes no sense whatsoever. But yes, I am a purist. I love a good tortilla, good meat, cebolla, cilantro, and a really, really spicy salsa. Man, I should have had Delia make you some spicy <laughs> salsa. Oh my gosh, she would love you so much. She'd be like, why can't you be like Sandra? Yeah, and, and I, because I've heard, you know, as you get older, you become less tolerant to spice because it irritates you more. You well, your intestines are like not tolerant for that. Well, I hope that my intestines are, are made of steel because <laughs> the day I can no longer eat spicy food will be a sad day. I feel that. Yeah. Like, really, really, really sad. Oh, Alma, I have had such a great time speaking to you. I've learned so much. You've done so much. You're doing so much. And I think there's just great things ahead for you. Thank you so much, Sandra. Again, like I said at the beginning, I've been such a fan of your show since the very, very first episode. I've had such good laughs. I've had a good cry. And I've just, I think I've run the gamut of emotions with your podcast. So it's such a pleasure and an honor for me to have been on. Oh, thank you, Alma. Thank you so much for listening to. I do really appreciate it. Of course, it's my pleasure. Now, if you enjoyed today's podcast and you're thinking, hey, I think I need to speak to a lawyer. You should get in touch with me. You can do that by going to scmlawoffices.com and sending me a message there. If you're not ready to do that, definitely say hi anyway. You can connect with me on Twitter at SEM underscore in underscore ELA. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode.